Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yeah. You know, that is the question. And we all know that the beginning of change is that contemplative stage. And when I talk with addicts, they consistently say that they were going to tell their wives or they were going to tell a friend a million times, and then they backed out and they were afraid. Now, maybe that's because of the shame or maybe that's because of the consequences. But the bottom line is they thought about it, thought about it, and thought about it and ended up fearing the consequences. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and it is a very difficult situation to divulge that kind of information. And yet, if you don't talk about it, if you don't um, become honest, if you will, with your loved ones about this affliction, you'll never get healthy. I hate that, but that's the way it is. And I know that it can have disastrous consequences. It's possible. However, my experience is if you have a loved one in your life and you share your sexual addiction, your fears, your concerns, although they will be reeling, they also will appreciate the honesty. And I got to tell you, they usually hang in there with you if you're willing to do the hard work it takes to learn how to manage this illness and recover. That's the good news. And I've worked with thousands of people, and I have rarely seen a wife or a husband walk out on the sex addict. 
Now, I'm not saying that, that relationships don't end, but they don't necessarily end at discovery. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is there's a lot of pain in between. And oftentimes, I'll talk with people, and they'll say, how did I get this way? What happened to me? Why did it happen to me? And I'm teaching a course right now for clinicians and coaches on sex addiction and partner betrayal. And we tell our students that in many cases, there was some trauma reenactment, trauma that occurred early on in the relationship of the sex addict in his formative years, you know, age four, five, six, seven, eight, but not always. Because the other thing we know is that this internet has made things affordable, accessible, and anonymous. And what ends up happening is the brain gets conditioned to want to look at pornography, to want to act out. And then part of addiction is that you want more and more and more. You want novel, different, unique. You want to see what's out there. And so it can be that nothing contributed to the addiction but the behavior itself. Now, I had gotten a request from a woman. I'll call her Marty. And I actually had answered this email earlier, and she missed it, and she couldn't find it. And I said, Marty, I'd be happy to talk about this again. She says, my husband can't stop talking to women online. His conversations get sexual, and he believes these hot young girls are real. He has doled out money, gift cards, gifts, iPhones, laptops, all sorts of um, items. He says he loves me, but he won't stop finding these girls on unsavory sites. He then gets lost in his fantasy world and no regard to how it affects me. Oh, boy, she is so right there. Fantasy is a type of sex addiction in and of itself. So regardless of how these women treat and or exploit her husband, the fantasy he has about them is by far the larger sexually addictive behavior. And the fact that it appears to her that he has no regards for her feelings is disturbing. He has also turned into a chronic liar. He guards his phone like it's pure gold. We did have an agreement that he was to let me see it whenever I desired. And he did this for a while. Well, not a while. It actually only lasted a couple of days. What can I do? How can I help him? Well, Marty... I think there are a couple things. One of the things I hear from the majority of my addicts that are in good recovery is that there were two things that absolutely made the difference in their relational recovery. You know, sex addiction is a recovery issue, but it's also 
a relational issue. And the two things that made the most difference was, A, that the partner share her feelings, her real feelings, and B, that she have a strong bottom line. That means that she gets with somebody, hopefully that'll be somebody who is an expert in partner betrayal, because we know how you feel, we know what you're up against, we know what you need to do. Not our job to tell you what to do, but we can certainly direct and advise you as to what research shows and the literature suggests and our experiences. And that is that you have some good, solid boundaries. Boundaries that have consequences. The worst thing you can do is say, the next time I catch you on that phone with somebody else, I am leaving. Because the truth of the matter is, if she doesn't leave, he's not going to believe her. It's the same thing we talk about in parenting. You know, don't tell your kids you're going to do A, B, and C unless you're going to do A, B, and C. Because people are smart enough to watch for the ultimate outcomes. The other thing I would say to Marty is you need to put together a plan, a plan that perhaps is hierarchical in nature. You know, if I see that you're texting other women, I'm going to ask you to leave for a month. And I realize that a partner doesn't want to do that because she's afraid she's giving him permission to act out. And she may be. But then it's not safe to be with that person if he isn't willing to do the hard work. Maybe she says, if I catch you on the phone or your laptop chatting it up, I'm going to remove our AT&T services or I'm going to ask you to sleep in the other room or I'm going to talk with our family and get some advice from them. You know, a lot of times partners are afraid to talk with their family because they don't want the addict being judged. And I get that. You have to be very careful who you talk to, when, where, and how. But the truth of the matter is, if Marty is dealing with this all by herself, she needs support. And to get additional support besides going to that partner-sensitive therapist, maybe she needs to be in a 12-step group. Maybe she needs to be in Women of the Battle. Maybe she needs to be part of an online group so that she is not all alone and she finds out how other women have coped with this. Now, I know these are really important choices, and you may not make the right one. This is all trial and error, and it depends on the pathology of the sex addict. I'm here to tell you, I work with motivated sex addicts who want to be in recovery, and they may make some bad choices, but ultimately, they're not out to hurt their partners. If a man or a woman, depending on who the the sex addict is, if he consistently disregards 
what you need for safety, you may need a therapeutic separation. And if you're in a situation where you can't afford it, you can't do it, you won't do it for the kids, you know, I mean, there's, there's a zillion reasons not to do it. At least get yourself with somebody who can help support you while you figure out what you can do, how you can respect yourself while he is not respecting the relationship. You know, it, it can be very, very, very tough. And I just want to tell you, you know, you said that he is not following through with the promises he made to keep you informed of his passcodes, to give you his phone. I mean, a lot of times in my men's group, the men will say, dude, get a flip phone. Come on. You know you cannot do porn in your pocket. It's too tempting. Take the temptation out of it. Now, we all know somebody can act out if they want to act out. But making it a little bit more difficult is always the way to go. You want to maximize the interference factor. That's why covenant eyes and filters and polygraphs are so um, helpful in getting an addict to think about their behavior before they act on it. Because I'll go back to my first point, which was most addicts don't like what they're doing. And they've wanted to stop a million times. And they haven't had the courage, to be honest. And honesty is the beginning. It is the foundation for sexual addiction recovery. So, Marty, I hope you got to hear this one. I spun it a little bit differently. Um, I said the same things, but I, you know, always give a little bit different advice depending on how I'm feeling. How am I feeling? I'm feeling tired today. You know, I woke up at 3.30. I don't know if it was the Super Bowl or what, but I woke up at 3.30. I was to get up a quarter to five, and I couldn't get back to sleep. So I said, oh, I'm going to get up, get to the, the club early, work out. I had a doctor's appointment, and... I just made it an early day. I'm drinking coffee right now. If you hear me slurping, that is why. Um, not real smart to do at 9.15 in, in the evening, but I wanted to make sure to have enough energy for you. Uh, it's all about you, listeners. <laughs> it's all about you. Okay, now tonight we have a really interesting guest on, and she's going to be talking about her book, Me Too. Kelly and I think it's Palfi, has written this book, and it's a compilation of her research as a psychologist and a police officer who identified offending patterns and common grooming techniques that added to perpetration. And, you know, I talked about it earlier, trauma reenactment, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse can all be contributors to sexual addiction. So, she found that one out of every six men have been sexually abused before the age of 18. I would agree with that. I think it's maybe even a little higher. My stats say one out of 10. She says one out of six. I think it's probably one out of four or five. The truth of the matter is they choose not to disclose. And tonight, Kelly is going to be talking about what the public can do 
to prevent abuse and how oftentimes kids, adolescents, young adults, is misdiagnosed as having ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, or ODD, Oppositional Defiance Disorder, um, when really they're acting out because of their pain and because of the perpetration. And so for that reason, um, we thought this would be a great show. If you believe that you've been sexually abused, um, it's very important to understand how your trauma may have fed into this problem. And that will help you to make a better decision about how to heal the wounds as well as, you know, making it real, making it so that you understand and really work diligently on looking at your childhood, dealing with your anger, and making a difference. Okay. I'm Carol jurgensen Sheets, and I am so happy to be with you. And what I know to be true is that we try to keep you informed to the best of our ability. Why do we do that? Because we know that this is not an easy topic to talk about. And we really do want to make things better for you. And we do our very best to educate and keep you, well, keep you posted on what you need to make life better. And so that's, that's why we do the show. And, wow, I feel so blessed to be able to do it and to know that, you know, one of the things that I believe is that you don't have enough health professionals that can help you work through the betrayal. And that's why it's so important to listen to podcasts, get information, and make it your own. And so I'm going to play a little commercial, and I'll be right back. Kelly is trying to get on the line. So hang tight, and we'll be right back with more Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Well, we might, but we might not. I don't think we will. Okay, so I'm going to give her a call because what I know to be true is it is so... When when we have a few technical problems, it can be really tough. And that's why you have to be able to multitask. And I think she's having trouble. She's probably gotten the wrong number. I could have been the culprit there. All right. There she is. I am so glad she got on the line. You are listening to Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and this is going to be quite an informative show. All right, Kelly, is that you? Yes, it is. I'm sorry. I was thinking you were calling me. My apologies. No problem. I sent you uh, another 
reminder because I knew that you were excited about doing the show and you wouldn't be late. I just thought, you know, I do two different podcasts. And I thought to myself, could I have given her the wrong instruction sheet? I might have. So I am glad to have you on the show because you have done some incredible research. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what made you pick this topic about sexual abuse and sexual offending. Okay. Uh, okay. Is that where you want to start there? That is. Okay. So, um, well, Kyle, as I said to you in my email there, I used to be a police lady, right? And so mm-hmm. um, it was It was really through this sort of process of becoming enlightened. Um, I began my career working in corrections, and I remember wondering, why are there so many men in prison? I mean, compared to the number of women prison, in prison, why so many men? Um, well, I never had that question answered while I was there. Um, now I'm convinced that our prisons are likely filled with male survivors who used, like, negative coping means um, and became victims of the system. Um, so when I became a police officer, I had the opportunity to be part of the inception of the RCMP's first child sexual exploitation unit in British Columbia. And our mandate was to investigate international-based sex crimes committed against children. So these cases are, these are the cases which involved what we refer to as sex tourists, and these people would travel abroad for the purposes of sexually exploiting children. We also investigated mm. internet-based sex crimes, which included the production and distribution of child pornography. And, of course, you don't make child pornographic images without children being abused, right? So the RCMP was in the process of training me to become a subject matter expert, and they flown me out to Ottawa to have some training under this uh, forensic pediatrician, Dr. Sharon Krupler, who specialized in child sex crimes. And at one of these seminars, pro hockey player Sheldon Kennedy came and gave us a private lecture, and this was like 2004, so way before his book ever came out. And he started off by saying, I can't believe I'm in a room full of cops. And, I mean, he was nervous, so it's... And this got attention, right? Like, I knew he had something important to say. He explained that he'd been been sexually abused by his coach, Graham James, and that the abuse went on for several years. He talked about how it began, when it took place, how he coped, and how it was maintained. And so he also talked about why he didn't say anything. And some of his reasons included that his career was literally lifting his family out of poverty, that he was raised poor and things had finally started to change for his parents. Um, his parents were also super proud of him and he didn't want to break their hearts. Plus, of course, he had a chance of make, making the NHL and he didn't, want to, he didn't want to lose that opportunity, right? And he also knew that Graham James had the skill and the power and the ability to get him to where he wanted to be, right? And, One of the other reasons that he talked about, which is really sad, is that he felt like some of his teammates' parents knew, or at least should have suspected, that he was being abused, but that they turned a blind blind eye, right, and did nothing to intervene. And so he kind of referred to this time as And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, that's got to be true, right? And, I mean, on one hand, he was a pro hockey player, and on the other hand, he was a victim. And that was the part that I kind of related to, because I, too, had felt like I'd been leading this double life. I mean, on one hand, I was in my own definition of the big leagues and major crimes and stuff. I was in to be in, and I was getting the opportunities I wanted. But then I'd been bullied and harassed, and I didn't know how to stop it, right? So, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for me to go home and bawl my eyes out because of what I'd been going through, and I didn't know what to do about it. Like, I just felt mm-hmm. powerless to stop it, lest it end my career, right? And, I mean, right. like, I had this really profound revelation that, I mean, this happened to me as an app. Ab- 
was a police safety with a badge and a gun. And Sheldon was a teenager. I mean, my heart really went out to him. So after he spoke, I was reminded of that question that I had earlier about, like, why are there so many men in prison, right? So it was like the lights kind of started to go on, and I started to see that there was an issue. I started to see that males are victims, too, and that, you know, there really wasn't a lot of room for them to be victims, um, nor were there any supports in place for them. And I was, just, I was just really left with this deep awareness that society had failed him. And so fast forward a few years later, I ended up losing my career to bullying and PTSD, and I was desperate to find something else to be passionate about, right? So I'm, I'm now back in university, and one of my professors mentioned working with male survivors, and I was reminded of Mr. Kennedy and how society had failed him, and I just sort of saw this niche in need of attention, right? So I made arrangements to do a practicum at a place, call, place called the BC Society for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. Took all the training I could, read everything I could find to the subject matter. And, you know, the more I learned, it was sort of the more I realized how little we knew about this subject, right? I mean, like, considering that I was a police lady investigating these sex crimes, and, I mean, I was part of the elite unit that was investigating these cases, and I didn't even know that a boy could be victimized and still get an erection, right? Um, I just thought, you know, I don't think the if general I don't know public this, knows that. Yeah, exactly, it's right? The same thing with females. You know, females yeah. also can get aroused and be molested and hate it and love it and wish it would never happen and miss the attention. It's that continuum that makes it so confusing. Absolutely. And, you know, the difference between it happening for a male versus a female is, you know, on some a lot of levels, it's so much more obvious for can't deny it <laughs> I mean it's right there right mm-hmm. so and I mean yeah not to minimize what happens for women but definitely this is a shaming experience for men right so of so course. here I am investigating the RCMP's for a sex tourism case right and and one of my supervisors had told me not to worry about the boys and that decision like I'm not sure if he knew about involuntary arousal but I can tell you that I sure didn't so I just thought you know, I I kind of wanted to teach people the things that I didn't know. Well, and you know what? It's Funny. like you knew that there was a void of information, and there's a certain vulnerability for males that they're not supposed to have allowed this to happen. And so there's a secondary shame that accompanies just being in this kind of situation, Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's messages all over society. They're never supposed to turn down sex, suck it up, be like a man, you know. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, and if they do try to tell anybody about what happened to them, they're often met with, like, responses like, oh, you know, I would have liked that, or she's hot, or you're lucky, or right, or how come you got an erection, right? So, yeah, you very confusing it. for me. Yeah. Well, and you know what? It's like you took your own personal experience of having been bullied and and made fun of and not feeling included or safe. And somehow on a gut level, when you heard about this and when you saw the um, great amount of males in prison, you put it together and you decided to be their advocate and decided to write the book. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? And, I mean, it, it kind of, on some levels, it saved me too, right? Like I needed something to be passionate about. Absolutely. So continue yeah. your story. This is very fascinating. Okay, so um, I'd love to tell you about my research findings if you want to hear. 
Yeah, because it so, started with research, and then you decided to put the book together. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the most predominant reason for non-disclosure was, you know, not surprisingly, a fear response. Um, so um, a majority remained silent because of intense fear that manifests either emotionally or physiologically or both, right? Many of the men that I spoke to, like, you have to understand, a lot of this, these, these, boy, these people were abused as infants and boys, some as m- adult men, too, but generally it started off as infant, right? So half of these children were abused by a bio parent. So, of course, they feared getting in trouble. They feared standing up to their parents, afraid to tell. Others had received this message that sex is a taboo subject at home. We don't talk about that. So if we talk about that, we're going to be in trouble. We might even be blamed. Um, a lot what might happen if they dispose and their family gets broken up, right? Like, if I tell, maybe dad will go to and my siblings will go to foster care and things could be worse in foster care, right? Um, some feared being labeled as homosexual or rejected by their peers. One fellow was really honest. He said, like, if I tell, like, who's going to pay for college, right? Like, and that's totally fair. Like, you know, foster kids mm-hmm. don't get college paid for as far as I know, you know? Right. So, um, you know, and this guy wanted a life for himself. He's like, I've been through hell. I deserve to make something in this world. And fair enough, right? He's like, if I, if I spill the beans now, I'm not going to go to university. And I need to go to university. Otherwise, what's my future look like? So that was the emotional piece. Physiologically, a lot of times, um, these guys were, were subject to things like memory loss and dissociation, right? So that was actually the most predominant reason for non-disclosure. It was huge. And so what people need to understand is that God designed our bodies in a way that information that is literally too hard for, handle, for us to handle somehow gets buried, right? We kind of some, somehow separate ourselves from it. And what, what's kind of the cruel part of that blessing is that often when people are doing better in life, this is when their trauma memories come flooding back, right? So this whole mm-hmm. idea of repressed memory, you know, it sort of gets a bad rap, but, you know, anyone who's taken any sort of trauma training understands that memory loss and dissociation are the body's response to that, which is unbearable, right? So, well, and then the second I've got to tell you, Kelly, when I did a lot of research um, at, at Children's Hospital here in Indianapolis on sexual abuse, and what I found was that males tended to disassociate even more than females uh, when right. it came to sexual abuse as a child. And right. then, okay. you know, there's the sexual abuse, and then there's the sexual play with kids that are much, much older that, that wasn't play but was portrayed as play. And it just gets very confusing to kids and young adolescents. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, you couple that with the messages that boys aren't supposed to feel, boys aren't supposed to talk about emotions. I mean, I know this is so much better improved in today's society, but, you know, the men that I interviewed were all adults. This is stuff that was happening to them as boys, right? I'd like to think that this would be a lesser situation now, but, like, the second most common response these boys felt was this profound sense of isolation and hopelessness, right? They felt like there was no point in telling Sorry? Yeah, no, you're yeah, absolutely because, right. That isolation is what then creates the shame. Yeah. They, well, they not only that, but they they felt that, that that no one would or could help them, right? Like one of my one of my participants, he firmly believed that nobody could help him. Like he absolutely believed 
that he'd have to outlive his abuse. That he'd ha- he said he started counting the years, the days when he was 10, like eight more years, and then I'm out of here, right? And Because he'd never heard of any child ever being rescued, right? I mean, his grandparents knew about his abuse, and, you know, they tell his parents about, you know, the fact that they'd caught their priest raping him, and his parents' response to that was to forbid him from seeing his grandparents. So, you know, I mean, this, this guy had valid reasons for believing no one would ever help him, right? It's a crazy story, exactly. but it's true, right? It's in my book. <laughs> um, go ahead. No, I was just going to say continue. Tell us some more stories in your book. Um, well, uh, I don't know. I think you'll just have to read the book. They're, they're very complex stories, right? But, um, so, you know, some of these guys had, had tried to tell um, people. For example, one of the boys was being um, abused by his mother, who was a teacher, and or she was, I don't know if she was a teacher or just high up in the education system. And so he went mm-hmm. to his favorite teacher, and he tried to disclose something about his mom, which, which was that she was having an affair. And, like, he was hoping in his mind that this would get his mom in trouble and that he'd be in so much trouble he'd be sent to live with his dad, right? But instead the teacher just went and told his mom, and he got beat. So, like, some of these kids had tried to disclose, but then it ended badly, so they didn't try again for years to tell anybody. Well, and Another- I have to think about what a powerful position you're in you're interviewing and validating these men and the abuse that they felt or the multiple layers of abuse that they had experienced because they did tell. What a powerful and empathetic place for you to be in. Yeah, it's a privilege, honestly. It really is. Mm -hmm. It's an honor to be able Mm -hmm. to support male survivors. And And so you know, ask you – oh, go ahead – I was just going to say one of the other really common reasons was that a lot, of, even as boys, these kids felt that they had to protect their parents, right? This would be too much for mm-hmm. mom. Like, you know, you asked for stories. Like, one of the men, his sister was, um, they were both adopted, but his sister had a lot of behavioral issues. So mom and dad had a hard time with her. They, you know, they spent a lot of attention. Um, a lot of their attention went towards her. So he just thought, oh, my gosh, I can't drop this on them. They couldn't handle it. That would just be too much for them. So he never told, right, for years. I think he just told what a couple of years ago, and he's an adult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that shame runs deep. There is no doubt about it. And And I know in your book you talk about the fact that on top of all this, the other travesty is that oftentimes young men or young boys, adolescents, even young children act out and they get labeled as having ODD, oppositional defiance disorder, or ADD. Yeah. And, yeah. and so then all of a sudden they're pigeonholed in the schools and in the churches as being problem kids. Yeah, absolutely, right? Manifestation mm-hmm. of the trauma. Absolutely. You know, these kids, they're, they're afraid to go to sleep because they're being abused at night, so they're falling asleep in class, or they're not paying, or they're having flashbacks, and, you know, they might be disruptive. Even the class clown, right? Like, you know, um, to one of my participants, this is something I'd never heard before, but he said he threw himself into his studies, that he tried to be the perfect student, hoping that somebody would notice something was wrong, right? Like... I don't know. I just and you know, and he he went on to become a teacher himself because he said he he wanted to be able to help help kids, kids that were like him that needed oh. help. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so your research, you know, you say one out of every six males is abused before the age of 18. I had always heard it was one out of 10. I always thought it was less than one out of six in my own gut. Um, mm-hmm. How did you end up with that number? Well, there's actually quite a bit of research out there, and it, it kind of depends on, you know, sort of where you set the bar, whether it includes contact offenses or non-contact offenses. And, um, you know, the research is varied depending on the way the way you measure it, right, of course. But, yeah, there's um, Dr. David Lissack and some of his colleagues did some research, I believe it was at a university, where, you know, the prevalence of male sexual abuse and, and those were the, the statistics and you know I mean I've double checked that even in, even in Canada like this this there was a, something came out on CBC today about um, I think they said 13 percent right so I mean it's all within the same ballpark right but basically you know it's it's not even considered reliable because we don't know how many people don't tell, right? But we do know that for as much as women talk about sexual abuse, research shows there's at least half as much male abuse going on. And, you know, like some other unique unique things like that I talked about in my book is like, you know, I mean, sex offenders, when they target boys, they're more prolific in their offenses, right? Like these guys are admitting to somewhere upwards around 150 victims each over a lifetime. Um, there's a more prevalence of violence, believes, to occur in male sexual abuse. Um, you know, it's predatory grooming techniques, right? So these are all stuff I talk about in my book, of course. Um, yeah, just um, on average it lasts six to seven years. Well, right. and you know, I'm I'm sitting here thinking about our listening audience. There's no doubt that about 55% of them are women who want to understand their husbands better. And Absolutely. then 45% awesome. are sex addicts. Yeah. And, and I know that they may be listening to this show. I mean, I can think of 10 right off the bat that say, I can't remember sexual abuse happening to me, but I know it happened to me. It's like I know that I put it away. And, you know, you were talking earlier. uh, We definitely know that the body keeps score of what the mind won't remember. And denial can be a wonderful thing because it protects someone from having to deal with their feelings lifelong. Um, Did you meet many men that talked about multiple abuses by many perpetrators. Um, yes, this one in my book, his name is Jacob. Like he was abused by his mother, and his mom used to literally pimp him out. I mean, and he he started off by saying, um, you know, my story is going to be really hard for you to believe, and that to me was so sad because it's like I just asked you to tell you tell me about your abuse, and now you're. You know, here you are feeling like your story is going to be too much for me to believe, right? But, I mean, he he tells the story that he basically became known as a kid who could be used for sex, right? Like, and, and guess what? People did, you know? It's shocking. But, you know, I mean, that's sort of one of the things that I learned as my, you know, in my time as an teacher, right, is these guys are organized, like, the pedophiles, they're organized, they're connected, they share, they trade, right? This is what they do, right? Like, I, when I was an RCMP officer, I was doing undercover work, and we would go into, like, these chat rooms where, you know, pedophiles are basically trading child sexual abuse images. And, I mean, I could, you know, like, I mean, I was, I was even just during my training, like, they're saying, okay, switch now and go check out this other chat room, right? 
these guys would follow me from one chat room to the next and literally be stalking me trying to trade images, trying to get, you know, images of live child pornography, like hold up a sign with a, the date and time attached, like that kind of stuff. Like these guys are organized, they're prolific, they're, yeah, they're very targeting, I guess you'd say, you know. Well, and for our listening audience that have children, um, can you go over just a few of those grooming techniques, what a mother or father might see uh, that their child is encountering that they don't feel good about, but they don't have enough, they have enough intuition, but not enough wisdom to know what is really going on? Um well, that's a good question. I do. I did go into great detail in that in my book, but um, I'm just going to grab a copy so I don't miss anything. But yeah, basically, um, you know, I don't want to say if it's too good to be true, but that, you know, if your gut instincts are telling you that, I say listen to that. Um, lots of, basically, these guys they target children. They're gonna they're gonna try to befriend you first and try to meet a need that you have, right? Like um, I'm overwhelmed. I don't have time to take my kids to school or. I never get to do this with my kids, so they're going to offer to do that. They'll, you know, they'll befriend the child, which sounds harmless initially, but, you know, when they start to try and get the kid alone to isolate him with gifts and affection and stuff like that, um, I start to get a little bit more worried, right? Like when they're trying to um, separate them from their friends, that kind of thing. You know, a lot of times it's, feel like he fits in in school, that kind of stuff, um, that they'll they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I was bullied too, or I was harassed or whatever, right? I was just like you, um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, uh, sorry, I'm just going to look it up here, what I, what I wrote, because, yeah, it's, it's basic, but it's, I mean, it's basically like this, this pattern, right? It starts off as, you know, befriending the kid, befriending the family, meeting their needs, you know, getting them isolated, um, you know, usually lots of times they'll introduce secrecy into it. Like they'll test it a little bit. Okay, you know, I know you're not supposed to drive trucks, but I'm going to let you drive because I think you're man enough to drive. So, you know, but it'll be our little secret, right? So they, they introduce this secrecy into it. And lots of times there's alcohol or drugs involved. And, you know, I know you're not supposed to do that, so don't tell. But, you know, obviously you're old enough to do this now. Your parents just think you're too young or that kind of thing, right? Um and then, you know, eventually they'll, you know, introduce sex talk, right? They'll, well, what do you know about sex, that kind of stuff. So one of the things that I encourage is, like, it's it's called the law of first mention, right? Like, as a parent, you want to be the first to tell your children about sex, right? Like, don't let someone else do that education for you. Like, um, teach your children that they have private parts and that no one's supposed to touch them unless it's for medical reasons or helping with, you know, bathroom stuff. But, um because, you know, I mean, a lot of teenage boys are groomed by older males who are telling them, hey, you know, this is what dudes do, we masturbate, let me show you how. And this is how, it, you know, how the abuse gets engaged, right? So, uh, of course, their bodies respond the way they're designed to respond, and the rest is history, right? But now they're looking back in five years going, what the heck happened? Um, did that answer your question? That is exactly right. I mean, you, you hit it on the nail. That's what grooming is all about, introducing mm-hmm. concepts that feel familiar and feel special and yeah. then move towards more sexual and then certainly yeah. more exploitative. Yeah, your absolutely right. Is absolutely fascinating. How do people get a hold of your book, Me Too? Uh, my book's called Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. Um, it's on Amazon, and 
Uh, it's, it's actually only come out January 15th, 2020, so some of the stores are still having a hard time getting in stock. I know Barnes & Noble was going to be carrying it. I believe that's an American store. And, yeah, Chapters up here in Canada is going to be carrying it. They have it online, and uh, Amazon has it. So, yeah, it's called Men Isn't Too. Isn't that funny? I thought it was Me Too, not Men Too. Nope. But it is <laughs> that Me Too movement for Men Too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not meant to – like, it's a, sort of just a – the way I've got it in the book covers, like the N is kind of saying, hey, don't forget about me, like men, right? That little inverted okay. asterisk there. Yeah. Men too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse by Dr. Kelly Palfi. Okay, so what I clearly heard you say is there's a lot of different ways to, to get the book. Amazon might be the easiest depending on where people live. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds so academic, and yet I know that you said – that you really wrote the book to not be academic, that you wanted people to understand, not have to look up words. You just wanted them to have the basics of why you did the research, what you found, how we can prevent this in our culture, and what we can do to encourage um, talking about it. Because let's face it, when when there's sexual abuse involved, kids learn not to talk, trust, or feel. And and we got to get them talking about it as well as we got to get the men talking about it. Well, and you know what? Like, you know what I'm hearing and seeing is that, you know, from my experience at university, we have to get professionals talking about this. We have to get professionals thinking like this, right? Like, you know, I mean, I had two universities that, you know, I gave a lecture to their students and they said, wow, I learned so much and you really made me think, right? Like, you know, I wonder if this is why, right? Like, why you know, so-and-so is not having a breakthrough, right, you know? Um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it is It is meant to be psychoeducational, right? Like, but it is intended to sort of, you know, get everybody talking, right? Like, I want, I want professionals to be thinking about men as possible victims, not just perpetrators, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, I know that men are the predominant number of perpetrators, of course, but they're also targeting infants, young males, young adult males, right? And men, like there's right. lots of cases. There's, there's cases in my book where I talk about how adult men are raped, like, you know, I mean, approached in their sleep, approached when they're high. Um, it's an act of war in different countries, right? Like men I was going to say approached in the armed services. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Hey, can I ask you, because obviously you have, many stories about um, mothers and did you were you able to gain a profile on um, a woman that would sexually abuse her son a profile mm. yeah you know, you know on, I, on the woman herself no honestly that wasn't part of my research right but uh, you know I mean I, the two like out of, of my 13 participants two of them were offended against by their mothers, right? And um, Uh ironically, both of them had inserted themselves into the education system, which was really sad, right? But that's what what pedophiles do. They insert themselves into these careers where they will have access to children, which is terrifying, right? Um, Yeah, you know... I know profile of the moms know that, but I mean, I know that's out there. There is, there is people, there are people who've researched that, but I, that wasn't part of mine. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. So let me just double check. Now I know you found that the main reasons men don't disclose is their, the fear response. They are mm-hmm. either fearful emotionally 
or physiologically. They, and can you say a little bit more about that, those two differences? Well, like I said, emotionally, I mean, sometimes they're afraid that if they report, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break up their family, right? I mean, and you can't completely separate them, right? Like these, these guys, if they think about, like, what it could do to their family, it's a gut-wrenching, harder response, right? Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's something they feel internally, right? And then, um, yeah, just, uh, yeah, like I said, the memory loss, the dissociation, that piece, right? Like, um one of the body's response to severe trauma is to develop a secondary persona that can handle the trauma, for example, right? Like, you know, uh, especially the younger the abuse occurs, right? Like, they absolutely can't make sense of it. Three of my participants actually developed what, what is known as, you know, dissociative identity disorder, or, you know, the old multiple personality disorder, right? But that is a severe uh-huh. response to trauma because they have to create this whole other persona to deal with what is that which unmanageable, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. The other, you know, they were either too afraid to tell, half were abused by a bio parent, or they felt like no one would help. And you just shared stories where they they tried to go for help. They didn't exactly know what to do. Um, And it just did not work out and it made things worse. Now, what do you hope to achieve? through writing this book? I mean, because obviously it's so pro-survivor. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously I'm hoping to create, like, dialogue, much-needed dialogue um, among professionals, among just, you know, people in society to make room for men to be victims, for boys and men to be victims. Obviously I want to, to support male survivors themselves, right? I mean, um, men, men are still very underrepresented in the helping field, right? Um, yeah, I just, I guess, yeah, to create that dialogue, um, just to sort of reduce the shame, so to speak, to reduce, like, you know, there's, there's often like this deep self-loathing that goes on with men. They went like, how could my body do this? How could I do this? Well, one of my goals of the book is to create understanding about how this happened, right? It wasn't just, you know, you were betrayed, right? Deeply betrayed. You were groomed and betrayed, um, I want to just help create a different way for people to think about men, right? That, you know, men are allowed to have all the same emotions that women have, right? It's, you know, being a victim doesn't make them less of a man, that kind of thing, right? That is what Bottom I think line. is most, most fascinating is that you really, throughout the entire book, um, advocate and talk about the courage it takes to be able to talk. I mean, truly, yeah. this is about them not, never knowing what they could say and not knowing how to say it and giving them permission to say it. I mean, yep. to our listening audience, if there is a man out there that has never talked about his sexual abuse, what would you say? Uh, I would say uh, you're not alone because it's very isolating, right? You're not alone enough for it, you didn't emit a vibe, and that you were likely very specifically groomed and then deeply betrayed, right? And if your body responded, it's because that's the way God designed you to. It's not your fault, right? I'd also reiterate the words of two of my participants. You have a voice. Healing's possible. And tell someone, and if the first person you tell doesn't listen or doesn't believe you or doesn't respond the right way, tell someone else, 
right? There's help out there. So who is your there? intended audience? You know, when you when you were writing this book, who did you hope would read the book? Um, everybody, honestly. No, um uh, my intended audience would be like the layman, right? Like, you know, it's it's just, it's meant for everybody. It's, um, it's a psychoeducational book without getting too academic because I hate having to stop and look words up. I've, I've included explanations of concepts and terms associated to meant to help people understand, you know, like the barriers that men face, right? It's for male survivors to help them make sense of what they've experienced, to reduce their shame and isolation, to give them hope and healing if possible. And it's for supporters of male victims and other helping professionals, right, to help them to understand what men go through, what boys go through. Yeah, and to just sort of get people talking, to create dialogues of acceptance that make space for the reality that boys and men are victims too, and they deserve the same kind of support that female victims get. Absolutely. And, you know, you do this so well. I. What are you going to do for the future? What's next? Uh, well, right now I'm just I'm working on my audio book, getting this put into audio, and uh, just trying to do some blogs to create awareness. Um, got a few other little projects in my back pocket. <laughs> yeah. Some and if people, if people wanted to get a hold of you, how could they do that? Um, well, I have a website called Peaks and Valley Psychology. Uh, um I got a, a web a, a email address, men two, uh, men two, like T O O twenty twenty unspoken. Okay, very good. Because you know, truly, this is such a I want to say shameful experience for so many men that hearing you talk about it today and normalizing what they went through may enlighten some men to want to get help. And so what professional would you direct them to? Um, you know, like in the United States, there's a few agencies. One's called One in Six, and the other one's called MailSurvivor.org. And I believe both of those have um, listings to people who specialize in, in male sexual abuse, right? Um, right. And... You know, um, Carol, I just wanted to go back to what you said about courage there. Like, if you listen to Brene Brown's work, she's fabulous, and she talks about, you know, the definition of courage, including that ability to be vulnerable, right? So, like, you know, one of the neat things that came out of this whole experience of, like, starting to, as you said, advocate for men was it really redefined my definition of what, of, of what courage looks like, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, like, you know, it, it's... I. Of, it's not easy, but I would say one of the easier ways of dealing with it is denial and silence, right? And it takes a lot of courage to come forward. And, um, you know, when men do, they hopefully get the help they need, right? Well, you got that. And I love Brene Brown. And, you know, one of the things I believe is that there aren't enough groups. I know that I'm working right now with a male survivor, and literally, he is sitting right now in a class that is 80% women. Well, they actually, there's 10 people in the class. So eight of them are women. And then he and another man are the male survivors. And he's like, I'm, I'm happy to have this, but I sure wish that I could be with a whole room full of men. It would feel safer to me to talk with men. 
Um, so do you know anything like of anything oh, like absolutely. that? I mean, it's one of Okay. Yeah, you know, they call them weekends of recovery. Um, Dr. Howard Bradkin, who was the one that Oprah used when she profiled the 200 male survivors, he's part of the weekends of recovery. And, yeah, they go away for a whole weekend and have a lot, all kinds of coping interventions taught to them and, you know, meet other survivors. And, like, yeah, men that go to these weekends say that it's life-changing. And that's sort of my dream. I want to start that up, something like that up someday, too. Oh, I can tell you'd be fabulous. Now, one more time. That resource, again, is called what? Uh, Weekends of Recovery. So if you go on the malesurvivor.org website or the one in six website, I'm sure they have links to it. Okay. Malesurvivor.org. Like the number one in six.org. I'm sure they have links to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kelly, you have been just so inspirational. I, I love the fact that this started with a research project. You know, I can, I hear the passion, and I hear, I hear the policewoman in you. Actually, I mean, you know, you get strong and um, an advocate when you need to. I'm sure it's from protecting kids, and I just really wish you the best. I want to hear about other projects that you're doing because you're really making a difference, and I want to thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. You know, Carol, can I just say one more thing, if I may? Just to sort of reiterate the importance of this topic, you know, like it's it's just too easy for people to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear, right? So I just want to just share with you briefly, like, um, research which I used in my in my research was, you know, there was this study done, I think it was 14 men, who hit absolute rock bottom and then made the choice to disclose. And they said, I would kill myself or talk about it. That's where they were at, right? So, of course, we have to ask how many of these men picked the other alternative, right? Very sad. Have I lost you, Carol? Well, I have lost you. So would you repeat that one more time, what the man said? Oh, um, can you hear me now? I can. Uh, Okay, I was just referring to some research that I used in my um, doctoral studies. It was the research was out of Iceland, and it was of men who had hit absolute rock bottom, and they said they finally told someone about their sexual abuse because they were either going to kill themselves or tell someone. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, so it's just like, it. just, yeah. right? Doesn't that make you just go like, how many men picked the other alternative? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what you are stopping the cycle because you're bringing it up. So everybody out there, please talk to somebody if this has happened to you, and let's yeah. let's keep protecting our young males and let's get the older males to to advocate for this process. Thank you so much, let's, Kelly. I gotta thanks. go. My pleasure. Thank right. you. Bye bye. Uh huh. Bye bye. All right. You know. We're all about advocacy here. And so I've got to tell you, I so appreciate the fact that Kelly wrote this research and then made it into a book and it's making it her own. You know, this is about courage. And you you absolutely know what I always say. There will only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to 
be yourself. And um, if you haven't talked about this, find a professional to talk to. Go back to oneinsix.org or malesurvivor.org. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Chief, and I'll see you back for more sex health with Carol. Make it a good week.